Hello, and welcome to Makers.dev episode number 49. Chris, pop quiz, what is the square root of 49? Seven. <laughs> That's correct. You have earned the right to continue this podcast. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> until, until episode 64, when I'll have the next uh, question similar to this. Uh, hey, uh, I would also love to give a uh, shout out to Jonas Larson, who tweeted some nice things about us. And... Uh, I want to speak especially to Jonas Larson's daughter, who said that like getting mentioned on this podcast was one of the coolest things her dad has done. Uh, I doubt that. And so I would just like to encourage uh, Jonas's daughter to get to know your dad a little bit more. I'm sure he's done much more impressive things than get mentioned on this tiny podcast. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, I, I like when people, uh, you know, uh, talk to us. Um because it's always fun to hear other people's, you know, interpretations of what we say. So, yeah, thanks for listening. It's fun. And, you know, I've said this a million times, but, you know, I would continue doing this even if it was, you know, as soon as we're done editing it, it goes unlisted on YouTube or something. Because, my gosh, just having this periodic check-in, especially for the, the types of careers that we're both having of it being less structured, we don't have bosses to report to. So we can kind of be each other's boss in this, and then I can kind of be my boss I, I am better at being my own boss in the past and future, better knowing and having this continuity of like, okay, I'm going to have this weekly check-in. It's just a, a nice background process to have. Uh, cool. What did you get up to this last week? What are you thinking about? Um, more Master's Labs. Um, I basically resigned myself to, you know, like most of the work I'm going to do between now and the end of the year is is for these couple labs coming up. So I finished one and then they released the final project the next day. And so like I get started on the final project um and then same with uh, the parallel systems labs there's a new one you know right after i finish this one so um i did though i checked out a couple catalog competitions which i haven't looked at uh recently there was some that i didn't really want to participate in and then there's a couple new ones that i might uh want to do so uh, i may pick up one of those also um yeah and i have i i did i guess i did some like customer service work on meeting place and i did a little bit of work on acorn chat but mostly just mostly just the labs i'm excited about the new kaggle competitions uh because you got that eight atx 3090 gtx uh, G- G- yeah gtx 3090 yeah oh i got the numbers right okay uh, that was closer yeah, yeah. than i thought uh <laughs> you got the fancy graphics card uh and i oh no rtx sorry oh, yeah. rtx rtx 3090 okay I-, I feel better that we both made a mistake good <laughs> something x and then some numbers yeah uh you got that and uh the my impression of that was like, okay, now your calculus has changed of like, instead of how can I be using as little GPU time as possible, change to like, okay, well, I already have this thing and I maximize it by using it as much as possible. Um, I was expecting to hear like, oh man, and I got first place in this Kygo competition and I have it running to do this other thing. And I, you know, I have this theory on, you know, the best domain name speculation. And so I just have it constantly running in the background, like mining high value.com domain names or something. Uh, what has it been doing? Is it like how I feel like there's a <laughs> kind of a mean turn. Yeah. Uh, I am curious about the uh, types of things you've been using it for. And I'm excited at the prospect of uh, using it for more Kaggle competitions. Cause that's, something you were like jamming at uh before starting the uh master's program that now you have this thing and it seems like an, an unfair advantage in this type of competition uh how are you how, how do you find yourself using that graphics card and then what are your plans with 
the the character competition is using it going forward yeah so is what you wanted to ask why you spend a whole bunch of money and it doesn't sound like you're doing anything with it is that yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> which, um which is some judgment i'm projecting on myself <laughs> as i have this m1 max macbook coming in i think it's supposed to get delivered later today and like i did not need this and i just know i'm gonna be doing the same thing i'm doing with my current laptop and i'm gonna feel guilty in about two weeks of like why did i buy this i did not need this I'm, look at how many gpu cores are just going unused uh so i may be i may be projecting some of that self-judgment yeah. on you um yeah so uh it actually is getting used uh it's not uh, i guess i haven't talked too much about exactly how i'm using it but uh and it's it's not you're right i thought i was gonna like try to use it constantly or something like that it's more like um at, probably at least every day i use it once uh, one is just for the deep learning um class i'm in like that like the, all those labs have used a gpu and so i've been using it for that a lot mm-hmm. um so every time i touch those it's on uh i also have been having a lot of fun with just language generation and the uh, image generation stuff um i don't yeah. post all that and i don't talk about that all that much but i'm still doing that um just learning about what all that can do um i have uh there's a slack group i'm a part of with some friends and i like post some random stuff there sometimes and so some of my best stuff gets posted there and it's it's stuff like so this last week um i was asking uh, gpt uh j i think i was using um to talk about stories and my prompt was something like uh about the ai machine uprising and in almost all the stories, it was painting the AI as the good guys and the rebel humans <laughs> as the bad guys. <laughs> and I don't know if that's just the, the prompt I was using or what, but it was like, yeah, these rebels came and they messed everything up, basically. Um, <laughs> so there's, I've, I've enjoyed some really funny things like that. Um, yeah, but most of the useful stuff right now has been my deep learning labs uh, for my master's. Got it. Okay. I hadn't made the connection that that's what you were running these labs on, but that makes perfect sense. I guess you can, can finish your homework that much faster and correct for an order of magnitude mistake in, in record time. Uh, that makes sense. Neat. Uh, okay. So, so, uh, going forward with the more, more Kaggle competitions, you'll, I, you, you've already done some Kaggle competitions with the, the new yep. graphics card. Um, but you'll just be rolling in like doing more of those. Yeah. Well, so I did some, I didn't actually, I, you don't officially enter. Well, so you sign up for the Kaggle competition, but you don't get on the leaderboard until you submit one thing so i did some where i downloaded the whole data set and i ran some stuff on my graphics card um but i didn't actually get to the submission part before the my master's work really kicked up into you know a lot of work and so i didn't actually submit to those competitions um yeah so i have done some work with it but not actually submission works gotcha gotcha I'm, i'm excited to hear about the new competitions you enter i'm also curious about gpu mining of cryptocurrencies have you looked at that and if that makes sense I have. Um, I I think it is far more effective for me to just uh, buy them if I want to own them, and then like instead of worrying about downloading a miner, like that's just one more thing. Um, yeah. So I looked into it a little bit, but and I so because someone was like, "Yeah, this GPU you should be running it for that whenever you're not doing it," and I did some calculations and like based on how much time it would take me and how much energy costs and everything, it's just better if I just buy it and then ignore you know all of that uh, yeah. cost with just one GPU. If I had more GPUs, then it might make make sense, but. That makes sense if you've had a scalable operation and or maybe if it was just easier to do like if there was a, a screensaver i remember a couple of years ago made by i think it was seti at home or something that was doing a bunch of number crunching looking for aliens or something and installing it was as simple as it's just a it's just a screensaver but then it's running in the background 
whatever computation that was hard for to do of looking at all these different numbers. If it feels like mining cryptocurrencies should be as simple as installing a screensaver. And then you just say like, okay, if there's no other active process, mine cryptocurrencies in the back end. And it seems like the sort of thing that should take you, you know, five minutes that then, okay, if it's making you, you know, a dollar a day, whatever the current value of the cryptocurrency is fine. And then crypto is kind of weird that uh, sometimes it, you know, hundred X's overnight. And so that might start to be actual money. And in the worst case, you're not losing money and you're, you're better using this asset. But on the flip side of that, I can imagine if it was that easy to mine, okay, well now that's going to drive the price down because now everyone in your position who has a GTX 3090, who's, it hasn't justified the time to spend to set it up for mining is now all going to come online at the same time. And now mining supply is going to be much higher and the, the demand is going to be the same. Uh, so the reward would go down, but in any case, it should be easier. That would be a yeah. fun problem I, to attack. I think it is. So once you know what you're doing, I think it's relatively easy, but uh, one of the problems is you can just, so one, you need a wallet um, and then you have a key and you have to keep that key somewhere. And that's mm -hmm. sort of a hassle. Um, and then there are many programs that can do it. I think about just as easy as you say, but there's many of them. So you, I would have to research each one and figure out, you know, make sure mm -hmm. I don't get all my cryptocurrency stolen. Right. Yeah. And then there's like mining pools. So you got to research those and make sure you're on one that you like. Um, and then after all that, like that, once you do that, that's like work you do once. Right. Mm -hmm. But then every year there's taxes and mm -hmm. like, I would have to keep track of everything that I mined and then keep track of when I sold it and stuff. And so if, if I make a dollar a day, then there's no way that that's worth the tax burden, even like of me, yeah, like yeah. if it takes two hours for me to, you know, or it, and it wouldn't, it would take probably two days to figure out, you know, yeah. all that stuff. And so that's just not worth the hassle. I hear that. I, I landed in a similar spot when I was, I, I don't have nearly as beefy of a graphics card as you, but I was looking at doing that mining, uh, I think Ethereum, cause that uses the GPU mining. And it took me like two days to set up. And then at the end of it, I did the calculation and I was like, okay, I'm making what, 30 cents a day. This doesn't make sense. Uh, and I have to keep this online all the time and like, ugh. uh, so I, I turned it off. But what I'm hearing is like the, the product opportunity here is solving all the problem for um, the problems for you of like, you don't need to figure out what the pool is because we already figured that out. You don't need to set up a wallet because we're handling your wallet in the back end and we're an entity that you trust. We, we integrate with Coinbase or something and we just drop cryptocurrencies in and you don't have to think about which currency to mine because we figured that out for you based on our algorithm of like which one is the most profitable to mine based on the one that you have. And installation is super easy and it works on every operating system. You just install it as you would install a screensaver and you're done. Uh, and then taxes at the end of the year, we make you a form. There's just one extra form and like, yeah, maybe you're only going to make, you know, $100 for the year. Uh, but it's going to be totally kosher and legal and you know it's it's three more numbers that you enter in TurboTax when you're filling out your taxes um that's the product i would want to see and then i think the advantage of the the the, the benefit you would get from making that would be now you can point all these people to your pool and now you get all the benefits of having your own pool of you can take whatever percentage you want off the top and uh merely by making the process easier for people like you you can make a much more you can be catering to a non uh, you can be catering to a less crypto technical audience um and so tapping into a, an underserved market yeah and i know of several products that address like different silos of those but mm -hmm. 
um, maybe there, maybe there exists a service that does all that. And I just don't know. Cause I haven't done the research, but yeah, I just, I did the math one afternoon and it just didn't seem worth it to even investigate it more. So yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Uh, neat. You, uh, we were talking a little bit before this call about the labs that you're doing and that you've developed a new opinion on rust. Uh, I didn't know you didn't like it, but like, I, I didn't get that impression in the, the last call we had. Uh, so gen in general, I so I like Ruby and JavaScript partly because they're uh, not they're dynamically typed, and Rust is very strongly typed, and the compiler will not let you do something like part of its uh, optimization is that the compiler will not compile if you know not only if your types don't match, but um, if the we talked about the like the borrowing and lending of objects, mm -hmm. so your types and your borrowing have to all match, and so that if you compile it, the you know if it compiles, then you're not going to have like dangling pointers you're not going to have null pointers you're not going to have mismatched types anywhere mm -hmm. um but all that it comes with a programming cost and generally for the type of programming i do i do not like incurring that programming cost i like to go like fast and loose and so especially when learning you know strongly typed languages there's always a learning curve that i just dislike um i got over that learning curve and now i appreciate some of the, the rust uh things more i probably won't ever use it f just because i don't I don't do the type of programming where I would need to use Rust, um, but I can see how you know it would be useful in lots of different uh, ways now. So, yeah, I um, I did experience like at the beginning of the lab. The lab seemed very confusing. It was about two phase commit, which is sort of a confusing um, uh, paradigm anyway. It's so like, say you have a lot of distributed workers, and you have to do a transaction, which means either all of the work happens or none of the work happens, um, and so you have a controller and then that controller gets like information in or it gets pro uh, requests in like to happen. And then you have to talk to a whole bunch of workers and say, can we do this? And they say, yes. And then you say, do it. Um, and so that's the, that was the lab it was implementing two phase commit. And um, it just took me a long time to understand it. And then I had uh, this experience, which I've talked about on a podcast before, which is like, it takes a long time to understand it. And then once you do, it's, it's, you like it. So it's like really hard, really hard, really hard. And then there's sort of a point where you understand it and then everything gets way easier. And it's like a really neat feeling. So I did have that. And, and that was cool. I've had that in basically all the labs. Um, it's the same reason I like cattle competitions because it's, it's like really hard. And then all of a sudden things start working and things feel really good. Mm. So, um, so I think after I had that experience, rust became easier because <laughs> it was like, things are actually working now. Uh, so yeah, that, that was my experience with the, the last lab. I completely agree on your opinion of typed versus non-typed languages, especially when it starts getting in the weeds of like, you have objects of things and the objects have different parameters of different types. And then you have arrays of those objects. And my gosh, just the, the minutia of the syntax of how you define that in typed languages is just a pain. And I, I like, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> let me, let me do it. And the, for the types of programs I'm writing, it's, you know, it's JavaScript running in Chrome running on a machine with 32 gigabytes of memory like am i really gonna run out of memory with this and if I, I i don't think i've ever had that problem um and if i have the way i would diagnose it is like oh my computer just said it's low on memory that's weird let me look in the profiler oh i have a memory leak here okay well you know it's probably the one part of my code that spawns infinite objects let me check to say oh yeah okay i'm, I'm being a little cheeky with the way that I'm doing this. Let me, let me clean that up a little bit. Um, but I, like, I've never had that problem. And so I, I, I can see for these types of things of like doing machine learning, you have to be doing 
computations you know trillions of times and so every little bit matters and if you have a little tiny memory leak oh that's that's just going to explode and that's going to be terrible and it's going to make your whole program not work um or stuff in vr ar where it, it has to be running as quickly as possible and you really got to be shaving off the milliseconds um but yeah i think part of the reason i haven't gravitated towards those types of problems is that i like i like doing stuff more than the technical side of it uh at least more so than people who are programming more lower level uh how how do you feel about that because like the way you're describing this process sounds really rewarding of you, you have that moment where it clicks and you feel like you're in flow and like you've understood the the problem um is it is it because of the context that the problems are in of like it's in a classroom setting and you get a grade on it and you, you've figured out this puzzle that someone set um I, th I think what i'm trying to ask is like ha has has the experience of going through these more technical labs and working at this lower level than you would usually work shifted the type of work that you like doing into more of the technical side or is this more of an artificial like okay this is part of the master's program and i enjoy it in this context but as soon as i'm done with this i'm, I'm probably going to jump back up to a higher level again where it's more fun and i can see more of the immediate thing that i'm accomplishing yeah so the difference is probably something like i w i wouldn't get as far in these lower level things if it wasn't for a class so like mm. i didn't enjoy that ramp up very much and so i probably just would have stopped but yeah. like for the casual competitions i enjoy the ramp up like it's difficult but i enjoy the feeling of discovery up into the you know the the crest or whatever yeah. um so what doing the master's program has let me do is investigate some things that i don't enjoy as much as some of this low level lower level programming and feel the same good feeling on the other end of that so that mm -hmm. feels good um once it's over though i will probably not touch rust or c plus again i mean i mean <laughs> if it if something calls for it maybe i will but um i'll probably go back to you know javascript and python and ruby um because i i'm, I'm just way more comfortable with that and i generally even though it's difficult i enjoy the ramp up um that to me points to that this degree program is really useful. They're creating an environment for you where you you feel the same source of rewarding feelings working at this low, lower level and understanding how things are going on at that level. And then you'll come out of the other side of it knowing how things are working at that lower level much more. And so you'll presumably be much more effective at building things at a higher level and knowing what, to, what the edge cases are. And the next time you're working, you know, in TensorFlow doing something and it's not working, you'll be able to remember, oh, this is probably because this lower level architecture of the thing that is working is encountering this type of bug and there's this memory thing going on here. And okay, I, I can solve that at the top level just by totally subverting it and, you know, doing this other thing. Uh, that seems like a really useful process. Uh, good job deciding to do this master's program. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, and I knew that about myself. And so that's one of the reasons I chose to do it, um, even though it doesn't necessarily make financial sense. Um, it is rewarding in that other way so yep makes fun emotional sense uh which leads me to something i'd love to talk about deploy empathy i have started reading i'm about a quarter of the way through it in typical us fashion before starting this book i had to recode an ebook reader that i was writing <laughs> of course uh code name tree books which i actually really like because it's like the data structure of the book is a tree but also traditional books are made of trees it's fitting i also own treebooks.app which is nice <laughs> uh so but uh uh i'll talk about the book a little bit first i i love this it's like a book about the stereotypical problem that uh, 
developers slash business owners like us face, which is like talking to customers is hard. And this is a book that makes a very clear argument for like, hey, this is why it's important. These are the problems it's going to solve for you. You know how sometimes you don't know what to build and you know how sometimes you're frustrated that you build something and no one cares about it. Here's how you solve that. And you know how, uh, you know, you don't know what direction to take your company in. Well, if you knew what people wanted because you were talking to them, you'd know exactly what to do and you'd feel better about yourself and the world and you'd be helping people better and just everything will be better. Um, and then it goes very mechanistically through like, hey, you're probably a very technically minded person <laughs> picking up a book called Deploy Empathy. Uh here is the step-by-step -step guide. Here are the specific questions that you ask someone. Oh, you don't know how to find someone to ask? Here is how you find them. You go to this place and you ask them these questions and you offer this. Oh, it's just, it's so good. Uh, she, she knows her audience so well. Um, but the, the topic that we're on right now is like the, the emotional side of this decision of like, you've, you've made this purchase to have this degree program and there's part of the thing that the, the book is repeating over and over is there's there's three dimensions to look at in that type of decision there's the functional dimension of it of like what is the physical thing that this thing is doing for me i bought a toaster because i can toast toast and then there's the emotional side of it of like okay well what does that mean of like why is it important to you emotionally what feeling do you feel from the toast well i feel the nostalgia of when i was a kid and you know my my dad would make me breakfast before he left for work. And it was his way of expressing love to me. And I feel like I'm getting that uh, same sort of feeling, making toast. And the third dimension is the social dimension of like, what does what does this thing, what, what does accomplishing this job do for you socially? Like how other people view you or how, how you would like other people to view you or like how you're interacting with other people. So maybe having the social is a way for you to make toast now for your kids. And now you can strengthen the social bond in your family and uh, you know, when people come over and they see you have a toaster, they're like, ah, this is a man who knows how to make toast for his kids. This is someone who, uh, has their act together and is a good father. Um, and it's, I'm, I'm going to be chewing them on this book for a long time. And I'm really excited for our interview with her next week. Uh, there's an exercise in the book that I think would be really fun to do live on the podcast. Uh, but it's, I'm, I'm, I'm like any good book reading it now has me seeing the world through a different lens and that lens just popped up of like oh chris bought this degree program to like feel a certain feeling and that is a very important dimension of what this purchasing decision was and if i was working for a university trying to think like how can we get more people to buy this thing and how can we make them more successful in it that would be a really important dimension to understand to help you be more successful and to get more people to buy the degree program uh so i'm excited for more talks about deploy empathy cool yeah i'm excited too um when i got the book i i browsed it very quickly but then i was reading a machine learning book at the time and so it went under that in my book stack um so i haven't gotten to it yet um and i was planning to read it this week before the uh the interview you you suggested that maybe i shouldn't read it uh fully though uh we'll, we'll see uh <laughs> we can talk about that and yeah see if i should read it or not actually there's yeah if you if you don't it would actually be kind of cool because part of the Part of this book that I really like is that it's designed to be as like minimalistically actionable as possible. So the for the exercise that I'm thinking of doing, uh, there's a list of questions, and you just like go through the list of questions and ask them. And it's that the the book is making this point that like this is not a complicated process, and even if you're bad at it and you just read the questions, you'll get something useful out of it, and you can start there. And it's much better 
to start by being bad at it. Uh, even if you don't understand all the different layers that's going on of all the theory and, and everything else the book talks about, like just starting there is useful. And the, the section of the book that you need to read for that is like, I don't know, you could, you could probably read it in 10 minutes. Um, so I think it'd be kind of fun if like, I'm diving into it and like trying to get as much out of it. And then we also have Michelle there who like wrote the book, who's <laughs> the, the <laughs> expert. Uh, and then if the only thing that you had done was like read the one little quick guide that she did, <laughs> uh, it, it'd be interesting to, to compare like a, a beginner and a little bit more advanced than beginner and expert uh, at the same sort of technique and then get her take on like, how that how that process works uh so if you if you're looking for an excuse to not do your homework <laughs> chris and, and read this book uh there, there's a there's a positive side of it that could come out we'll see it's like those youtube videos that have the uh, beginner intermediate and expert cooks and then they do yeah, something yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, like yeah we'll see i'd love to talk for a second about tree books i love this i've been chewing i think we've talked about this several times on the podcast but i've, I've been chewing on this problem of how do i more effectively read ebooks for a long time the Kindle is dumb, and so are other ebook readers. So is like books because it's just it's just a paper book, but digitally, it's like it's a PDF that you're going through, and that doesn't make sense. Uh, computers can do so much more than just display the text that you could see on the page, uh, and then it's a it's a worse experience. You inherit all the problems of a digital book, or I'm sorry, you inherit all the problems of a paper book. Uh, and now you also have the problems of a digital book. So one of the things people complain about is like, ah, when I'm reading a paper book, I can feel with my thumbs how much is left in the book. And I don't get that when it's digital. And so I don't like eBooks as much. Um, like what a trivial thing of, okay, well we have a progress bar and I guess you could put that on the bottom, but like, um, oh, and Kindle does that also, but that that's not even the level of problem we should be thinking about. We have like a, a processors running at gigahertz with 32 gigabytes of memory that like have infinite storage and infinite can plug into every other computer in the world and anyone who's ever read this book i can i can be getting their information from it and so i i feel like this is the closest thing to how reading an ebook should be in my mind and it's solved so many problems all at once that just man i've been chewing on this for years of uh, taking notes in line and like following the recommended way of reading a book of like semantically uh, 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 progressively summarizing it at different layers of abstraction of like you, you look at things at the level of the paragraph and you, you summarize it at that level and then of the section and then you summarize all the summaries that you did of the paragraph and you do it in your own words you're not just copying verbatim and then from that you go to the chapter and now that you have summaries of each chapter you have a, a really good high level concept of the whole book uh the, I, I have a model now of like the, the book is helping me through that method instead of fighting me against it um so my my method and the things that i'm doing don't need to be as sophisticated um and i found like something i i have struggled with forever with uh printed books is i'll just zone out and i'll like read a whole page and not remember what i read uh but the, the way that i built this like i'm reading the text along with having text to speech being read to me and it's highlighting what it's reading along the side. and that just that is the perfect uh, uh amount of information at the right time to be flown into my brain that just keeps me laser focused the whole time. And even when I start feeling myself drifting off, it like pulls me back in because it's still interesting. And there's like a thing for me to be doing with it. I'm, I'm interacting with the text. I'm, I'm summarizing it. I'm not just letting it kind of wash over me. Uh, I love it. Uh, and I have a, a few questions for you about where to take it next. If just your, your hot take, but I'll pause there for a second. Uh, what, what, 
I know we've talked about this several times, but <laughs> yeah. do you, uh, what, what do you what do you think about this? Am I am I a madman trying to reinvent <laughs> reinvent the book, and no I, one cares about this but me? I think this is the first time I heard that you have text to speech reading it along with you. How have you found that? I can't listen to text to speech for longer than thirty seconds without going crazy. So, is that's it? interesting. Yeah. I love it. Uh, <laughs> it's gotten really good. I'm just using like the default text to speech engine in Chrome, which uses the system text to speech speech engine. So on macOS, it's, it's Alex or whatever the the default voice is, and it's really good. Uh, I've listened to whole books like that before, so mm-hmm. I, I just may not have the aversion to the computer speech that you do um and the api did to do that was reasonably straightforward it was a little tricky because it's difficult to differentiate between like did it did it finish reading this thing because it was done or did it finish because i stopped it and then there were all these raised conditions and react and it was tricky but uh otherwise the api was straightforward but to, to answer your question like it's really good and the the thing that i like about it especially is being able to read the text at the same time that i'm listening to it uh, because that that keeps me really locked in, uh, and it, it's it's pushing me along. It's it's like the easiest reading experience that I've ever had. I don't have any of the the shortcomings of the audiobook of like I'm losing my place in the text of, okay, what are we talking about and what what where does this fit in the higher level thing? Uh, and I don't have the downsides of the text, which is like it's kind of work to get me to keep pushing forward in reading text. This this feels like I'm watching a movie, but I have a lot more control over it. Uh, that's that's how the text-to-speech has gone for me that's interesting i wonder so this is <laughs> don't take this as another feature request but i wonder so i know that michelle just finished the audiobook um for it could you plug the audiobook and do speech to text on the audiobook yes. and then yeah track along that is that. such a complicated problem but yes <laughs> so the, the thing that i would need is i split the book into sections uh, so like similar to notion uh, uses blocks uh, so like a, a paragraph is a section or uh, an image is a section uh, or a list is a section so what I would need is a mapping of for the audio file I want I want every the start of every section to have a time code in the audio file and then mm-hmm. it's even easier than text-to-speech because then you know okay start playing here okay well that means you know I'm, I'm on block number 4000 and that corresponds to time code 38 minutes and 42 seconds so start playing the audio file at that time the oh this is this is actually a a specific question i had for you the problem i would need to solve there is given this audio file i can do speech to text and now i can have a transcription from google of here's all the words we think are said in this audio file and here's all the time codes there so now i have now i have a map of words and time codes and i have the book and i'm not sure how I would go about weaving those together because the words aren't going to be perfect. It's not going to be exactly the word spoken. And sometimes you mess up in the audiobook, or sometimes you say something different, or maybe Google doesn't know what the word is. Uh, does a solution to that come to mind? Is there a, is there a technique? Could, what I'd love to be able to say is like, Hey Google, you're doing this transcription. Yes, but I already have what I think is the full text of it. And here are my IDs for each section number. Can you just give me the time codes for each section? But I, I don't know of a way to do that. Yeah, I mean, it'd be, I can't think of like any algorithm offhand. Like it'd be some custom algorithm to try to figure it out. And obviously okay. the closer the audiobook is to the version that you have, the better. But I could see like a lot of authors, if they revise a book and you have an old one, like that drops a whole section, for example, that'd be yeah. very difficult to solve. Um, yeah. So no, I don't have any easy answers there. The, the 
the massaging of it might just have to be done by hand. You might have to go through maybe. and maybe part of this is just a tool that lets you map it back and forth. And then is I that, guess I could go like I, I have a I have a pretty good guess of I guess I could start from the beginning and like try to match words and if you can just match them one for one, that's perfect. And so you can just keep going. But if you skip a word, like look around for the, the surrounding 10 words and see if you can get back on track. And if you get off by more than 30 words, then flag that as, you know, color coded as red and I'll manually uh, put that back on. Maybe that's what I do. Maybe, maybe I take strings of, maybe I take strings of words and I try to match strings of words exactly. And I try to match them temporally. Like I know, I know both of them are going from beginning to end. And then once I have those landmarks, I can try to shuffle into place the, the time codes in the middle of that. And then I the, the computer then shows me like, hey, here's how we did. And this part is off by a whole bunch. We, we only matched like 50% of the words in here. So you need to listen to this. Uh, and then I listen back to it and I'm like, oh, actually that was fine. It, you just got some of the words wrong in that Google transcription. Okay, that's that's starting to make sense. Yeah, that that is the dream though. Like the product that I want is just you know, you're, you're playing the audiobook along with the text and, uh, yeah, it, it would be work getting it to match up, but then the, the product would be really easy. Um, once I have that data, it, it would be trivial to weave the audiobook and then, and the book together. Yeah. Yeah. So that's all very interesting, but it sounds sort of ancillary or even orthogonal to your goal of reading books better, like with the, the, <laughs> prototype you have so yeah. uh what are the other you had other questions so what are the other questions you wanted to ask about i'd like your hot take on this as a product which now that i've been reading deploy empathy <laughs> maybe the wrong question to be asking <laughs> like i should instead be talking to people who have trouble uh reading books uh but i i think the question i want to ask you is more on like a logistics perspective of uh the most difficult part of this process that I'm identifying is to get books onto this platform. I need to translate them into Markdown. And going from an EPUB to Markdown is tricky because EPUB is just a zipped up file of HTML files. And when someone is authoring an EPUB, it's sort of non-standard of the way they do things. Like they're not just using headers and, and bold and underlined and things. They use like weird fonts and they'll split up their headers in weird ways. And it, it needs some like human data massaging to, to get that done. Um, so I'm not sure how I would get this started as a service. Like the, the thing that immediately comes to mind is come with your own Markdown file and you, you just import your Markdown file and uh, I don't care how you get it. And maybe I have some video tutorials of like, if you have an EPUB, here's the process that I go through and I can give you some of my internal tooling to go from like HTML to Markdown. But then, you know, once you paste the Markdown in, you're going to see what my version of the ebook looks like on the right-hand side. So you're going to need to do massaging of the of the Markdown data to, to make the thing on the right uh, look good. Um, so I guess I could do that and just offer that as like a free tool or like a, yeah. And then, and then I'll have a bunch of books that people have manually done on the platform, but I'm not really seeing a roadmap to like what happens next. I think what, where I would love this to be is like, it's my own bookstore and I have agreements with publishers where I'm like, Hey, this is a much better reading experience and you can buy the book from me. And I do all the, like, I'm, I'm going to sell the book. I'm going to sell the publisher's book and I'll give the publisher a cut and I take some of that 
and people can buy the book directly from me in a new format. But man, I have no idea how any of that works or how I would get <laughs> yeah. a, a publisher to agree to something like that. Um, so I'm curious if, if you have a, a take on that of like, how, how do you see this potentially working as a product roadmap of like a viable service to be offering? Yeah. So several sort of thoughts or questions. One is, so EPUB is a format and yeah, it's weird and non-standard, but it is a format. Um, yeah. Is there an open source EPUB part? Like why does it have to be Markdown? Is that just what you, your libraries are written in? And could you have found an EPUB one instead? Um, I don't know. Like, like could you just imp like, yeah, use the EPUB file instead of Markdown? I tried doing that at first and the, the difficulty is like EPUBs are really non-standard. So I, I needed okay. to figure out an, an unambiguous way that I could go into the the actual format that I needed in this JSON and like a, a tree structure of nested data. Um, but it turns out Markdown is a really good format that's human readable and writable right before that JSON because I can, I can just go one-to-one -one back and forwards between my custom JSON format and, and this Markdown format. Um, and the, the reason I really needed in Markdown is there's a lot of weird stuff you can do in HTML. Um, a, a trivial example is in Michelle's book, she has her uh, chapter title as a, as a number and then the, the chapter name. And in the HTML of the EPUB, those are two separate header uh, elements. And uh, the, the number is like formatted differently. So it, when, I, when I go from that HTML to Markdown, uh, what gets rendered is there's two separate headings right next to each other. And so the, the manual alteration I needed to make that's probably just custom for this book that like other books are gonna have different quirky issues is I needed to combine the number with the chapter title into one heading. And so now, okay, now we have consistent headings through the entire book. And that's one of like, I don't know, half a dozen little things that I had to do to, to massage the data into the right format. Okay, yeah, I mean, I guess that makes sense. Um, okay, so putting that aside a little bit, what I would do actually, so you talk about publishers, well, so first I would make this as easy as possible for people to uh, experience. And there's two mm -hmm. ways to do that, I think. One is like get a free book from Project Gutenberg, right? That, mm -hmm. you know, fits this and have that as an example. And a lot of people are going to go to that. 99% of them are going to be, you know, like, you know, I read that. Maybe that's interesting, but I don't want that, whatever. And then the 1%, you know, find a way to capture them, uh, mm -hmm. their email or something like that. So that's one way to do it. The other, you talked about publishers. I would skip publishers at first and just go to self-published books. Uh, for example, Michelle's book was self-published. Self um, go directly to the authors, say, and maybe at the beginning it is, you know, like uh, let your audience buy your book directly from the site. It can cost the same as, you know, it is from their download site or whatever, um, but they have this cool new format um, or they can get the direct download, right? Um, and that's where I would start. And then you, and then the book authors would, you know, could tweet that out to their audience or whatever. Um, and then that way, like your site is valuable to them, whether there's one book on it or a thousand, because if it's just the one book, that's fine. They're just there for the one book. If there's a thousand, you can show them the one book. And then on the purchase page, you can show them three more or something. Yep. Um, so that's how I would do it. I would go to the self-published book authors. That feels much clearer. I like that a lot. Um, especially getting getting people on it to experience a book early. I, I could just use something from Project Gutenberg. I'll have to think of like a, a it works really well for nonfiction titles. So I'll have to think of like a, like how to win friends and influence people I think might be in public domain. And that would be a really good book for this platform. And then if I can just, if I can just land people on like, hey, here's the experience that you'll get. Um, I think I will hook some people of like, oh my gosh, this is so much better. And they would be willing to go through the work of figuring out how to get their own 
uh, EPUBs to this Markdown format. Okay, mm -hmm. that makes sense. And, and then I, I like self-publishing also because, like, you know, Michelle, I, I could just ask her, like, hey, could, could I sell your book on this platform? And uh, and because I've already gone through the work of translating it now. Um, Another thing this might work well for is really long Wikipedia articles. Um, I don't know exactly how the tool works, but like if I go to a book, I often want to read the whole book because I'm very interested in it. Sometimes I just want to pull out interesting bits. But when I go to a Wikipedia article, I very rarely want to read the whole thing. Usually I want to read like a section or two maybe. Mm -hmm. um, so you, maybe your example could be uh, maybe a Wikipedia article also or articles like that. Wikipedia articles are good because those are also really well formatted. Yeah. Those those are unambiguous and they're all in the same format and they all have headings in the same way. And I like that. This, I think, I think this type of reader would also work really well for that sort of content. I think I'd, I need to hunt a little bit for the type of Wikipedia articles that that would work for. Cause like, this is, this is a tool for like ingesting long form content. And I can't remember the last Wikipedia article I read that I wanted to read the entire thing and understand the entire thing. Maybe like a, technical description of how a motor works or something hmm. yeah, I'll well, the, the one that came to mind immediately is uh, uh wikipedia articles for countries are often very long and they have like multiple threads of yeah, things yeah. like with different links um so like if you wanted to learn about scotland you could but you only really cared about i don't know whatever yeah your tool might be an easier way to visualize that oh, cool okay i'll think about that my mine also went to if i'm targeting a specific niche like if if i'm going to, to individual publishers i'd be going to like our friends who have all published books in right. like the the bootstrap SaaS space uh like i could go to rob walling and be like hey you know, start small stay small it's a great book uh could i sell it in a different way uh <laughs> yeah. what, what would that look like um that now if i have a collection of books that are all targeting the same market the person who reads start small stay small is also going to want to read deploy empathy i can i can snowball in that domain it's it's easier to start in that niche niche versus you know if i'm if i'm all over the place and okay my first book is deploy empathy and my second book is how to weave baskets underwater that's not gonna hit as hard which fits for me there's really good product founder fit because those are exactly the books i would want to be reading uh on this platform um i i kind of can't lose working on this because at minimum i'm getting myself to read and better understand more books and reading books is fun for the first time in a long time for me uh so yeah okay i like that i'm gonna go to individual publishers of the type of business book that i want to be reading that i would be reading anyway um and then asking the publishers who are self-published if i can sell it on this platform cool okay that'll make a lot of sense thank you that was a very good outtake cool uh the other thing i would look at the uh, is so Rome research this reminds me a lot of that just because it's a yeah. different take on note-taking Rome is and yeah. this is a different take of book reading so I would look at whatever like try to find early interviews with the founders or something like whatever they did really early on to get there because they have some really dedicated hardcore fans so whatever they did to get those um is probably something you should emulate and would be interesting to talk about on this podcast because I don't know what they did <laughs> so <laughs> cool I uh was actually very heavily inspired by Rome Research and uh, Workflowy in the the way that they're organizing blocks and that that it doesn't seem like that big of an innovation of like okay all of your notes have to be in bullet points and they can reference each other and they can keep track of which nodes are referencing them 
that's all Rome research is. But my gosh, I think it, last time I checked, it was at like 100K MRR or something ridiculous. Um, that if you, and this is a, a point emphasized in Deploy Empathy, that like you don't have to make, you don't have to completely replace an entire process. You can just make one little piece of it a little bit better. And that's enough to make a viable business. Uh, and she, she brings up the example of Tide Pods of like, that that's a very small piece of this much bigger problem of doing laundry. And there's emotional and social and functional reasons for doing laundry. Uh, and a particular sub-step of that process is the sort of frustrating, you have to measure out your laundry detergent. And Tide Pods made that a little bit easier. They just said, okay, instead of having to measure it out, I know you, we know you don't like that because we've done customer interviews and we've talked to people and they don't like how sometimes the laundry detergent gets on their hands and then their hands get sticky and they have to wash their hands and they don't know how much to put in and that feels bad. And uh, so we pre-measured it for you and it's in this little pod and you take it out and you put it in your laundry hamper and then you take another one out and have a little snack uh, while you're doing laundry. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> just by doing that one little thing, she has a, a number on like how big the Tide Pod industry is now. It's some like hundreds of billions of dollars, something ridiculous. Um, and in the context of like, it wasn't solving laundry. People still have to do laundry and they still have their motivations for doing laundry. It's just making that one little step. It's just, oh, you don't have to measure it anymore. Uh, we're, we're removing this one little piece of pain. That was enough to make this multi-billion dollar industry. Um, so it's encouraging and motivating to think that like i don't need to get people to be reading more books with this thing or or i don't need to be solving the entire problem in, in any of these products that i'm working on i just need to make one little step of it a little bit better and that's enough to improve people's lives and make a viable business yeah i'm reminded of the quote that like giving something a name gives it power um and so rome researchers like that or like bullet journaling right you could do bullet journaling before bullet journaling was a thing, but yep. the name bullet journaling like gives it power um, and people understand what you mean. And there's whole context now around that name. And um, so, yeah, maybe tree books is a name that you can give to something, uh, a g give to the process. Right. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I feel like we are literal wizards. <laughs> I'm also reminded of the joke that uh, there are only two hard problems in computer science, cache and validation, naming things and off by one errors. Uh, naming things is really hard and yeah. it's a not not only at the like variable level but giving giving something a name like tree books or tide pods or uh room research like by by identifying something you're okay now it's a thing we can talk about um cool uh i'd like to update you on my experiment with passive income renting out my car uh yeah. talk to how that go how did that go how how is it going <laughs> either really good or really bad what's that time time will tell you know I'll have... so i think the last time we talked uh i was so excited because i was like ah she's returning the car today and uh i feel a little weird about this because this is someone who i realized has way less money than i do and this has me questioning like capitalism and social justice and all these other things uh and what has happened since then is that I did not get my car back and this person has stopped messaging me and the platform that uh, hired car that I rented this car out on is being uh, compliant but not like actively helpful. Hmm. 
And the impression I'm getting is, unless I am actively pushing this process forward, I am never gonna see my car again. And that has me <laughs> feeling all sorts of different feelings. I'm like, yeah. yeah, here I am trying to be a upstart capitalist, like bringing more value to society. This this car was just like hanging out for months, not not making anyone any money. Uh, and now I'm trying to list it on this site and like uh, get it to have some passive income. And now I have to like legally fight for it back. And I'm in an especially weird position because I know who this person is and I have their driver's license number and I have their address and mm. I, I put a GPS tracker in the car and I know like where they parked it overnight for the first four nights that they were renting the car. And it's the same addresses that's on their driver's license. So like, I think I know where the car is and I have a backup key for it, but it feels sort of cavalier to like drive up to their house and steal my car back. Uh, Cause I don't want to get shot. <laughs> I, I like, I don't know what kind of neighborhood this car is in, and I don't know how this person would react if they saw someone taking their rented car, uh, even if they knew that it was me. Uh, I, there's just a whole lot of unknowns about this. So, like, I'm I'm really wanting to rely on the law and society of, like, this seems like a very clear-cut case. I This is my car, and I'm up to date on all my everything. <laughs> I legally own this car, and I have documentation that I rented it out. And here is the person I rented it out to. And here's where the car is. Law, please retrieve my car for me. I am a tech-paying citizen and my property was stolen and we all subscribe to uh, capitalism. And that is proving to be more difficult than I thought. I, I got on the phone with uh, the local police department and they said, uh, oh, your car was stolen. Uh, well, tell, me, tell me a little bit more about that and we'll, we'll send a police officer out. And I said, yes, I rented it out on this platform. And she said, whoa, 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 let me stop you right there. This is not a criminal case. This car was not stolen. This is a civil matter. And I said, I don't understand what that means or why it's important. Uh, I have since come to understand what that means and, and why that's important. Uh, effectively, what she was saying was, uh, we are not going to help you <laughs> yeah. until this matter is criminal. Uh, and I think, so she, she recommended saying a sending a 10-day letter which is a strongly worded letter that I have to send over certified mail to this person's address that says, hello, you have my car. I want it back within 10 days or else. Yeah. <laughs> and I am still unclear on what the or else means. I think what the or else means is then I can go to the police department and say, hello, this woman has stolen my car. Uh, it was a civil matter, but then I sent her this magical letter and I sent it 10 days ago, which means now it is criminal, I think. So now the police go to that address and get the car. But that also feels kind of weird of like, I'm just, I'm making money renting my car out and now I can get the police to go get it back for me for free. Uh, but that also kind of makes sense because like it was a crime. Uh, it's just, I'm... I'm I'm not so much torn up about the car or like the prospect of losing it as I am just like really intensely curious about the legal justice system and how this works. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm considering this like a, a potentially expensive lesson in how crime happens. And uh, maybe I'm in the wrong business. Maybe I should be renting cars from people and hire a car and then just keeping them. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Oh, sorry. This has happened. Um, I, I had a thought, which is like, so 
you said she was having trouble coming up with a daily payment for it. Like, I wonder yeah. now if she's just in such a hole, like if she's had it for an extra week, like it, it, she could just never get that amount of money. So she can't return it because she yeah. can't pay the return fee. Yeah. Um, and I don't know the legal implications of this, but what if you said, you know, you're supposed to return it on this date. You don't have to pay for that date to this date, but I need it within the next 10 days. You know, yeah. like maybe that'll actually get you your car back. I don't know. Um, or maybe she just wanted to take it the whole time. Yeah. Um, but that seems kind of weird. Yeah. Um, because she was responding until she didn't. And so yeah. that, that seems like that probably isn't the case. Um, yeah, th- this is, I had a, it's completely different, but similar in feeling situation when a client wouldn't pay me once, um, mm. through what I thought was no fault of my own. Um, I don't know if their story was different or not, but it's like, what do you do? Like I, you know, I messaged the client and they ghosted me. And so, and I, like, like, what do you do? Do you get lawyers involved? Whatever. Like, um, yeah, it's, it's super tough situation. I don't have that much experience with it. I would do whatever the cops said, I guess, cause they've probably seen this a lot. Although, yeah. you know, I, they probably haven't, they don't know all the details as much as a lawyer might. So at some point, maybe get a lawyer involved and then that costs money. Oh man. Yeah. I'm sorry. You're in that situation. I don't know what to do about it. I also don't know that the police would care. Like, no, <laughs> there's people that have gotten murdered. <laughs> right. That, that matters so much more than like me getting my whatever $4,000 car back. Um, and much more than like not getting paid on an invoice, but at the same time, like that's sort of the foundation that we're resting on. Like that's that's the that's the that's the fiction that we're telling ourselves of like, hey, you need to abide by this contract or else something bad's gonna happen. And I think I've lived a very privileged life. This is one of the only times that I have felt like I'm like scraping the bottom of that, and it's it's helped me realize, oh. I could have been playing things much faster and looser than like I've been very straight laced and I've always paid people on time and felt very anxious about like properly doing my taxes. And like, uh, we've talked about this before of, you know, I've, I've been perpetually scared of just like the government and auditing me and like wanting money or if I, if I made a mistake on my taxes and like knowing that there are people like this, they, the government doesn't care about me. Like, <laughs> I'm still paying my taxes. Who cares if it's off by a, a couple hundred or a, a couple thousand dollars like i'm i'm still doing it i'm still playing the game um the 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 difficulty in society i think is when you get to people who are like i don't have to play your game it's not real i have your car nana nana boo boo come get it back uh and like fair point dude you're right this i'm trying to do things the legal ways uh feels kind of silly and i yeah I, I don't know what i would do what what did you end up doing in the in the case of the uh, client who wasn't paying i emailed her enough times where she finally forwarded my email to one of the either law people or or the payroll or like a uh, invoice people at her company mm-hmm. and i was able to make a settlement uh we settled for like half like basically like they came down with like 10 percent, and i was like uh no i'll do 90 percent. and yeah. we settled at half and the alternative was i get a lawyer and so i was like fine just if you send it in the next week then i won't get a lawyer involved and yeah. um I, it was a bummer because I was out like probably, you know, it was like, so the, the tough thing with invoices is you do the work. So I did the work. They paid on time once I did the work and they missed the payment. And I was like, that's weird. And so I sort of badgered them for the next month. And then they said they weren't going to pay. And that was net 30, which means I was out three months of in, of Ooh. revenue. Um, yeah. So I got a month and I recovered a month and a half of that. But oh, um, yeah, I just badgered them enough times until it became, it became obvious that I wasn't going away. Um, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. In, in your case, my guess is she's not trying to be a criminal. She's just way overwhelmed. That's yeah. based on the thing, you know. So maybe a gentle prod saying you won't actually collect on the time where it's overdue will actually yeah. get your car back without getting a lawyer involved or something like that. That's what my sister recommended too. Um, so I, I sent her a message to that effect and then uh, I, I was just following a template for the 10-day letter and in the 10-day letter it, it doesn't say anything about like recouping the time. It's just like either give me my car back or tell me where it is or yeah. pay me the, the fair cash value of the car. Um, so hopefully she gets that message and can pay it back. But in, it feels different also than fighting a company for an invoice because you yeah. know that they have lawyers and money and you're you're the little guy who's yep. trying to get what you need and like i kind of feel like the man in this situation <laughs> like i can totally see from her perspective like man she's she's just trying to get by she's like and she's trying to work for uber and i can't imagine how difficult that would be like especially doing it on a, on a rented car and like i'm badgering her and probably uber's also badgering her and I don't know what situation she's in now financially of being able to do this, but like, there's no way that I'm like, uh, based on what the little amount of information I know about this person, she would not be able to buy this car for me. I'm like, what am I going to do? Sue her? Like, I, she doesn't have any money. That's the whole problem. Like, I, oh man, I just don't, I'm, I'm tying myself up in knots of like, I, I almost don't want to defend myself of like, give me my car back. Cause she, she obviously needs it more than I do, but, but like, it's my car. Right. So, and I can't be doing that. You, you can't just be taking people's cars. That's not okay. Um, but I, like, I've, I've gone through all these fantasies of what would happen if, if I saw this person and she was giving me my car back. Like, what, am I going to give her a stern talking to? Of like, <laughs> ooh, don't, don't do that again. <laughs> or else, or else what? She's going to go to jail for stealing a $3,000 car? Like, really? Is that, is that what we want to happen in society? I don't know. She oh. would. She would, and no, I think is the answer to that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. So that's been my first experience on this platform, and I think I would actually do it again. Having like, <laughs> if, if I get my car back, uh, the the one okay. thing I would do differently is there's a device I found out about that you can install in the car that is a remote starter switch. Yeah. Uh, and a GPS tracker. So like, as soon as she hasn't paid, I flick that off. And that's not going to stop the car from driving if she's already on the highway. But, like, she can't turn the car off and back on again. That The starter isn't going to work. Uh, and then I'll know the GPS coordinate of it. And then either she's like, hey, I can't get this car to start. And then I say, yes, I know. I did that. And you need to give me my car back. <laughs> or she just leaves and I lost the key. But you can get new keys. Uh, and I go out to the GPS place of where the car is. Uh, so yeah, you could do that. That also sounds like a great way to get your car parted. Like, like oh. they can load it on a tow truck and drive it to a you know scrapyard and sell oh, some parts. Good. Um, <laughs> I don't know, but then you would have a real case for insurance, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like it's it's in a weird spot with insurance right now. Of like, is there a claim to be made in insurance? I asked Tire Car, like, do you cover theft? And they said no. Yeah, <laughs> I I was gonna say this may be very specific to what Tire Car's terms are too, because technically, yeah. so if she sign an agreement with hire car and has upheld that agreement then she yeah. may actually be the right be rightfully in possession of the car yeah. um by some weird legal like thing so if you went and just took the car that actually might be illegal <laughs> right uh, now based on the agreement uh, man uh, i need to i need to yeah. read over the agreement 
made with them more more in detail uh they, they have a clause in there that i read that like their their insurance stops after five days after the rental ends or something mm. so if she now got into an accident i don't know that it would be covered by hire car and now that's bad for me because she probably doesn't have insurance so now what like she's there's there's this person out there that's just <laughs> damaging my property with no recourse and there's not a lot i can do about it other than ask the police to put her in jail ah oh. oh that's that's the, what i'm feeling right now the other thing and we're getting to our time but uh the thought i had last time was if she's doing this to uh go for to to do uber yeah do you know anyone or anyone in your circles that is actually would like to do that they don't have a car but they would like to drive for uber and you could just rent it directly to them someone you already know uh that would be so much better yeah yeah no it's a good idea for the future though that would be much better <sighs> all right that's all i got then i'll see you next week when hopefully i'll have further developments on <laughs> where my car is <laughs> all right goodbye <laughs>